None of these guys have played one single note in the entire album. It's like you're making your own record with our voices, Brian. Dennis played a little bit call too. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Sail On Podcast. This is Wyatt in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm joined today by J.D. Power and Associates Podcast co-host of the year, Jason Brewer. What's up, groovy people? It's officially time for me to call you all guys and ghouls, by the way. That's right. It is the spookiest time of year. Um, Yes. It is going to be 99 degrees today in Nashville. So... um, as, as it may not feel like um, the spooky time of year, it definitely is in our hearts. But let's uh, cover a bunch of stuff today. So uh, we're going to get into some voicemails. We're going to do uh, a little bit of a debate. And then we also have our next chapter in the Pet Sound Saga. Um, but first, let's celebrate the news. As Dennis said, there's been a change. On a personal note, I just got back from a month-long tour, hence the long gap in between our episodes. And uh, the question that I got the most was, where's Jason? Well, as many of you longtime listeners know, before the podcast began, Jason and I played together in two groups, our tribute to the Beach Boys called Sail On, which shared four members with Jason's group called the Explorers Club. Well, we are now separate entities continuing on Sail On and the Explorers Club, and everything's just fine. The podcast and tribute band are living on. Jason continues to work on new records for the Explorers Club. I'm smack dab in the middle of it, and as long as Jason wants to talk Beach Boys with me, I am happy to have him. Absolutely. No no funky vibes or anything, everybody. So I'm, I'm totally stoked and really excited for my buddies doing sail on and i love the podcast and i'm here to stay don't let me go all right i'm i'm down i'm down for it and uh i just uh you know you had a lot of folks out there that were wondering where you were so i i felt like we needed to address it and uh, well I, you know i just i got so hung up in my creativity that i told the fellas that i really needed to focus on that so that's what that's what I want everybody to know. There's nothing weird. Those guys are killing it and and really doing the Beach Boys music some serious justice. So I was really happy to be a part of it for two and a half years and to help, you know, get the vibe going. But they're taking it to the next level. Well, thanks, man. And uh, <clears throat> we are uh, still moving in and grooving as always. And uh uh, like I said, we just were on a month-long tour. It was exhausting and a lot of fun. We were all through Texas and went up to Colorado and um, just uh, dipped into Louisiana and passed through Arkansas as well. And I wanted to shout out a few people for coming out. Um, Stephanie and Chris. Stephanie had a really awesome shirt. She had the shirt that says, No Sweat, that Dennis was wearing in the uh, like 1976 concert documentary. But <clears throat> that is great. Uh, James and Bob and Kevin and Becca and Jim and John and Stephanie and Patrick. Thank you guys all for coming out and seeing us and saying hello. It really means a lot. Um, but yeah, we are going to continue on with some real news, some Beach Boys news. That's what you're here for. The Beach Boys performed at a gala celebrating the George H.W. Bush Points of Light Award for caring and compassion honoring Garth Brooks on September 26th at the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum in New York City. That's a long sentence. Sure is. Mike Love and his wife Jacqueline serve on the steering committee for the gala, so that's very cool. 
Uh, and speaking of Mike Love, there is a new special edition of Endless Summer Quarterly from our good friend David Beard, and it's all about Mike Love. It features some great interviews and pictures from throughout the years, so go check that out at esquarterly.com. And uh, I have not gotten to read it yet, but I got it in the mail as soon as I got home, so I'm really stoked about that. So shout out to David. Um, shout out to everybody for supporting Endless Summer Quarterly. It's really awesome, and we are really fortunate to have that beautiful publication. Uh, and as many of you have been writing and calling about, Brian Wilson just ended his tour with the Zombies, uh, and I really enjoyed hearing from all of you guys. I'm bummed I wasn't able to attend. Um, they are basically my two favorite bands, but I was stoked to see some videos online and both the bands sounded great and I was particularly excited to hear Brian's band playing Diamond Head. got sent a video of that whole diamond head performance and it was uh it's super epic our buddy mike mcpherson called in and he said that uh he saw one of the early shows on the tour and that they actually did the night was so young which kind of blew my mind because that's an unexpected treat yeah looking at the set list it's definitely the best for me brian set list ever i mean i like think I would enjoy that as much as Smile. So, I don't know. It's pretty great. I mean, there are some bubblings that he may add uh, some Sunflower songs to the next tour, which would make sense because it is the 50th anniversary. Um, but Super ep- epic. There's also speculation that Brian will be retiring soon, and we've heard that a few times, but there's Already some dates announced for January, so looks like he's at least um, keeping the train moving for the time being. So we will stay tuned. I really hope that I get another chance to see him and his amazing band. But uh, the Beach Boys are coming here in February. I'm actually going to be gone, but maybe Jason will get to go see them and give you guys a little report. My buddy John, our buddy Jonathan, is really, really uh, petitioning me to go with him. So we'll <laughs> yeah. see. I mean, he probably sh- he probably won't have to try that hard. Probably not. <laughs> um, last night, I actually just watched the new documentary called Manson: Music from an Unsound Mind. Have you heard about this, Jason? No. Ooh. So it's by the same filmmaker that did the Brian Wilson Songwriter series. Oh, then I bet it's good. Yeah, and it's got Dominic Priore, Steve Desper, Greg Jacobson, John Stebbins. It's got all those dudes in it talking about the Beach Boys and Charles Manson. And it's really cool. I didn't even know it was out until yesterday. Um, Somebody posted about it on the Smiley Smile message board. So I immediately went to Amazon where I purchased it. I think it was $9.99. You can rent it also on several places. But I think it's really cool. It was... uh, it was really informative, and it's always cool to see some of our extended Beach Boys family, and uh, I recommend you go check it out. Also, speaking of which, coming up soon, we hope we will be getting the annual copyright extension for 1969, um, the early Sunflower Sessions, a.k.a. Reverberation. I uh, recently put out a sale on Radio episode featuring some of these sessions, including some rare treats. So head over to the Patreon page and check that out. Um, it is in the show notes. A quick shout out to our new subscribers. We have Philip Wright, Jonathan Webster, Anne Ehrenstein, Antonia D'Amelio, Brian Anderson, Xander Lenoir, and Don Usher. We love you! All right. It's time to catch up on some listener voicemails. Hi, um, this may be a strange phone call, but I was actually just listening to your podcast, and I love them so much, and I was listening to the one on Gary Usher, and um, I mean, I'm just, I can't thank you guys enough for being so in-depth and uh, so into 
uh, my dad's uh, music and time and influence. But um, uh, Gary Usher is my dad. I'm his daughter. And so I was just sitting home driving in traffic, of course, in L.A. And I and I heard you talking about the symphonic, the Wilson symphonic um, CD. And we did release that. Actually, my brother and I released that. Um, so I just thought I would be able to answer your question. Um, but that was released. We released it under uh, House of Usher. Um, I think we worked with Sundays, perhaps, or something like that on it. But anyways, um, and again, I think you guys are awesome. And I haven't even finished, finished listening to all of the, the podcasts or even told my brother about it. So I just, I'm, so, and my daughter, who's in the music industry, she works at UCA. She is just, you know, she's just really into that right now. Anyways, and we went and saw Echo in the Canyon and they played in my room and, uh, you know, so on. And anyways, thank you so much for hearing me, uh, hearing my message. Um, and um, I'm here if you need anything. Thank you so much, you, uh, you guys. I hope to see you guys when you come and play here um, in, in our area. So um, anyways, uh, thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Hey, Wyatt and Jason, this is Gary Usher Jr., and I just wanted to put a shout-out out there and say I listened to the podcast, uh, specifically the Gary Usher uh, episode. It was an awesome job, guys. It was really a lot of fun. My sister got in touch with me last week and said, hey, you gotta, you got to check this out. Um, but anyway, yeah, great job. You guys are doing a, you know, a wonderful representation there, and, and you guys obviously... You know, really embodied a lot of things that are important to, you know, the family, you know, going forward, but also keeping it, you know, relevant and, and keeping people interested. So, way to go. I just wanted to at least uh, say thank you and uh, give you my contact information and just just uh, put it out there. I'd love to speak with you guys sometime. I'm in L.A., uh, you know, band, musician, all that stuff. was with my father uh, quite a bit. You know, all through a lot of the stories that you're that you're um, citing there, so lots of good stuff. I'll uh, I'll definitely be tuning in and uh, look for you guys when you're touring through here in LA when that comes about, or always you know reach out to me here and continue the conversation. Anyway, great job, guys. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Bye bye. Well, thanks, Don and Gary. That is very special. I reached out to Don after she called in, and. Um, I do want to have them back on the show in a proper uh, format at some point. Um, really cool to hear from Gary Usher's kids, and I'm sure they have lots of insight into how their dad worked with all these different musicians and just being around in the L.A. scene. And uh, I'm really stoked that you guys called in. That's really cool. It made my day. Yeah, it was super great to hear from both of you and that is really cool uh, that you worked with Sundays um I guess you did release it under House of Usher that symphonic record I really hope you guys will put it on streaming so all us in the streaming world now can listen to it on the regular so just a thought yeah I agree and that's a really rad record um I feel like we could spend a lot of time talking about everything that Gary Usher did we we just really scratched the surface on that first episode and uh we are such big fans of everything that he did i want to throw one two little things out into there since we're bringing up gary again um i'm really into the astrology record he made um, <laughs> i don't know if we i don't know if we talked about that or not i can't remember but it's really awesome and it mentions brian on the record and it has david crosby and it has chad and jeremy on there so it's really actually super awesome um and also i always try to give a shout out to the come to the sunshine podcast and i think a great day for anyone would be listening to our gary usher tribute right into the two hours of gary usher productions that andrew highlighted on his recent episode in the last year so yeah you guys got to go do that i agree and up next we have a voicemail from randy My name is Randy. I'm a been checking out your Ceylon podcast just recently. Kind of stumbled upon it and uh, been a Beach Boys fan for many, many, many decades. Um, anyway, uh, I just I guess after I've only I haven't heard all your podcasts, but of the ones I've heard, maybe half of what's on there, um, I haven't heard a mention of 15 big ones. And you know that is an underrated record. 
in my personal view. Anyway, um, just wanted to see if maybe you guys could touch on that sometime, you know, it, or maybe you don't like it. I don't know. It, it seems like you guys have a pretty open mind to things, but uh, I don't know. Give me a ring back if you got a minute. I'd be, like to talk to you. Say hello. Okay, enjoy your podcast and Explorers Club and all that stuff. It's some good stuff. So, yeah, give me a ring if you can. Thanks. Hey, Randy, thanks for the voicemail. 15 Big Ones is an album I really struggle with. There's parts on that record that are really brilliant, some really cool Brian moments, and there's some really bad cover versions on there. But I know it was kind of a comeback record and a record that fit with the times. There was a lot of 50s revival at the time with like Happy Days coming into view and American Graffiti in the rear view and 50s music and oldies bands and the oldies circuit was finally kind of emerging as a viable thing. So... I understand the groove with it. And it had a big hit with the rock and roll music cover. So we'll talk about that album sometime in the near future, I'm sure. But yeah, thanks for the voicemail. It also had one of the last true collaborations by Brian and Mike. And that was It's Okay. And I love that song. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Like it's got, that record is a conundrum. I, I could go on forever. We'll save it for later. But yeah. I really do enjoy the originals, like especially uh, It's Okay, Had to Phone Ya, and uh, I really like TM Song. I think that's awesome, too. But um, It's it's adv- it's adventurous. <laughs> I yeah. think all the, original, all the original stuff, I mean, even that Mike Love song, which isn't that great, but um, it, all the original stuff was good. I feel like they could have probably not done, they could have done like three oldies. Yeah. Know? I just don't and, think and they had the material, more. you know? From a record, like if I'm thinking like a record person, you know, it's, hey, you guys have a big hit out there. You've had the number one album two summers in a row. We got to get some more product out there just to get, just to get some more sales. Yeah, totally. But I mean, you know, we'll obviously talk about it at length. Let's just get back into some voicemails. Thank you very much, Randy, for, for, uh, for calling it. Um, Up next is a voicemail from Paul Behan. Hello, Wyatt and Jason. Um, my name is Paul Behan. I'm calling you guys from Calabasas, California, just a few minutes away from Malibu. Um, calling you guys because I, number one, wanted to tell you how much I appreciate the podcast. I've been driving my wife and children crazy with it for the last few months. Um, finally getting caught up on all the Pet Sounds episodes, and God, it brought back so many great memories, period. <laughs> I'm just... Uh, yeah, just really, really a big Beach Boys fan. I didn't grow up necessarily a Beach Boys fan. I definitely was a fan of the hits as a kid and remember vividly listening to the Beach Boys Christmas album when I was probably four years old, just going nuts in the, in the rocking chair, you know, in my parents' house. And all these years later, I remember having a couple fellow record collector nerd friends that had a stacks and stacks of Beach Boys albums. And I remember being a little bit puzzled, wondering why, and having absolutely no idea that they had anything that was really relevant past Good Vibrations. So fast forward, I moved to Los Angeles from San Diego in the year 1998, early 99. And I found myself in a position where I was extremely lonely. A lot of friends and musician people that I'd played music with and did stuff with in San Diego had all kind of dissipated. And by the time I moved to Los Angeles, I found myself in a new city not knowing anybody. So I spent a lot of time going to record stores. And eventually I started picking up uh, whatever Beach Boys albums I could find, usually in the dollar bin. And I wasn't adventurous enough to go into their 70s catalog, but I did find a twofer double LP copy of Smiley Smile and Friends. And I remember being really intrigued listening to Dennis Wilson's compositions uh, on Friends, Little Bird and Be Still. But I still wasn't, really wasn't a Beach Boys freak by that, at that point. Then one day I was working in a um, high-end retail boutique with a bunch of cool people. Um, I was pretty cool back then. 
But uh, this one gentleman that I worked with that had Rod Stewart hair and wore bell bottoms, and this is, of course, in like 98, 99, so he looked like he was an oasis, put on a bootleg CD of Smile. And honestly, I think it was one of those pivotal moments in my life where I heard uh, the long, creepy, spooky version of Heroes and Villains along with Do You Like Worms? Cabin Essence, all these songs that I wasn't necessarily familiar with, nor did I even know what the story of Smile was. But I lost my mind for like a year after that, just trying to find a copy of that. Had to go into the dark web on eBay and try to find myself a bootleg, which took me several months. So, yeah, Smile was my gateway. Pet Sounds I thought was great, but it was a, a bit too sad, for, especially for that time, for me personally. But um, yeah, I'm a you know I'm definitely a hardcore Beach Boys freak, especially after that. I would say summer of 1999. Um, I have since read every book, watched every documentary, I've uh, caught almost as many Brian Wilson shows um, as I possibly could in Los Angeles and San Diego, as well as seeing um, the Beach Boys performing wherever they're playing at in the area, especially if I can bring my children, especially when they were little. Um, fast forwarding to now, I did send you guys an email a few weeks ago, but quick story about Brian Wilson. So there's a little deli in Beverly Hills up in the, up in the canyon where I used to see Brian Wilson eating. I would go there for business meetings, take my kids for breakfast or lunch, and I would see Brian Wilson by himself sitting at a table eating a burger or sometimes a bowl of cornflakes and a grapefruit. And people would come up to him. You know, usually middle-aged men with Hawaiian print shirts on would come up and try to take their picture with him. And he would kind of break out of his seriousness and kind of give a deer in headlights smile and then sit back down, continuing to eat. I've always felt bad for him, so I never wanted to go up and say anything. But anyways, great podcast. Really, really, really love what you guys do. And I really appreciate it as a Beach Boys fan. And uh, keep up the good work, and I'll keep listening. Thank you. Yeah, that's pretty excellent that you went from Smile to Pet Sounds. That is rare. I don't hear that very often. But, you know, I have a few friends from, you know, especially my formative playing in bands years when I was in my 20s. Um, when I was really heavy into all the smile bootlegs and I can remember one friend of mine, I can't remember his name right now, but he was just like, yeah, I wasn't a beach boys fan until I heard that smile stuff. And, and then it kind of opened my eyes. So I can see definitely how that relates. And that's interesting that you would see Brian at that deli. That's, that's pretty wild. Yeah. I never got into smile when I was younger because, um, all I really had heard was the few tracks that were scattered about on other releases. And then when the Good Vibrations box set came out, I heard a few of those tracks um, and just kind of, you know, it wasn't really my thing. And uh, I got into Pet Sounds when the when the uh, 30th anniversary CD set came out. And that really blew my mind and kind of, I was at the right age for it. And then I think I started hearing bootlegs of smile when i was in college and um i enjoyed it but it didn't really catch me and it didn't make sense to me until i think brian remade it in 2004 and that was pretty amazing that was that was when it really made sense to me and then obviously when they put out the smile sessions that just totally blew my mind but um thank you very much for calling in paul and that was a great story. I uh, I look forward to getting back out to California. Hopefully, we can we can see all you guys. But let's move on. We've got a great voicemail from our good buddy Freddie French Pounce. Hi guys, it's Freddie here, calling all the way from jolly old England. Um, you obviously read out my email before in the Keeping the Podcast Alive episode. But I wanted to, to sort of do a fresh little message in uh, to say, obviously, I'm still very much enjoying the podcast. Your, 
The Caroline No episode recently actually basically moved me to tears listening to it. I was driving around for work and I started to well up a little bit and it was, um, I had to sort of pull over for a bit before doing my next delivery to a customer and thought they might get a little bit concerned otherwise. But more to the point, I wanted to call in simply because I'm curious on your preferences mix-wise as far as the Beach Boys go. It's probably a little bit of a nerdier topic, but I don't hear it brought up very much. Now, I know you, Jason, the Caroline No episode, spoke about your sort of purist nature and you were very dedicated with with the mono mix for that song and I guess pet sounds in general. But what about the whole overarching thing? Say, well, obviously, the mono mixes stop once you get to, well, I mean, technically 2020 because you've got the single mono mixes as well. But for the albums that have full dedicated mono mixes, how do you lie? Do you stick just with the mono mixes? Do you prefer stereo mixes for the albums? This debate, obviously, is even stronger once you get to the ones that have been remixed. So, for instance, me personally, I I can't remember the last time I listened to the stereo remixes of both Summer Days and Summer Nights and today, although obviously the stereo mix for Smiley Smile is pretty pretty good, but it's there's a few weird like the intro to With Me Tonight is the wrong take and all that all that jazz, but. Yeah, are you mono guys or stereo guys or a bit of both? I mean, me personally, I always go for the mono, but sometimes I'll play the stereo because some of those mixes seem to have a little bit more of a clarity to them, but also I like it. Like, sometimes I want a bit of a change, so why not really? Um, what say you guys? As I say, really enjoying the show as always. Looking forward to seeing at least 50% of you later in the year, and yeah. Have a great day, guys. Thanks. Freddie, thank you for calling. Um, Freddie is an old friend of mine. Well, he's not old. He's a lot younger than me, but you know what I mean. And uh, he's uh, obviously... Long-time friend. He's a long-time friend of mine, and he is in the UK, and uh, we have never met, but he's actually coming to Nashville with his wife in a couple weeks. Um, I heard about that. Yeah, so um, I'll I'll hit you up, JB, and see what you're up to, because um, I know he'd like to meet you. But yeah. um, I am excited to, for that, and I'm excited to go record shopping with you, Freddie. And uh, you can probably teach me a thing or two about mono versus stereo, and I'm sure many of our listeners can too, because I'm not as educated on it as a lot of people. But I do know, like you mentioned, that the... Uh, what many people consider the definitive mixes and masters of the Brian Wilson produced records, like up till friends, I guess are uh, in mono and the Kevin Gray remasters that uh, came out a few years back um, are very, very sought after. Uh, And there's a great video on Vimeo, which I will link in the show notes of him mastering surfer girl from the original mono master tapes. Very cool. Would love to get Kevin on the show at some point. Um, And, you know, I guess my take on it is this, and I'll let Jason go on it, but uh, I love most of the mono mixes, but in certain cases, I think I prefer the stereo because um, there's just certain things that you don't hear in the mono mixes that are... Uh, a lot easier to dissect and especially for the purpose of our close examination and um, especially for the podcast, I usually choose the the stereo versions unless there's a huge difference. It's a lot easier to examine the mixes and understand what's going on. Um, But it's all about like, I guess, you know, if you enjoy the clarity or if you enjoy the warmth and I guess there's the whole, you know, discussion about what was the intention, but you know, I mean, Back then, everything was in mono because that was how everyone listened to music on AM radio, and it was all going to be coming out mono anyway. The Mark Lynette stereo remixes of Pet Sounds are fantastic, in my opinion, and I prefer them to the original mono version. Like I said, I just like the clarity of it, and I like being able to hear everything. And it becomes uh, much more interesting for me to listen to stereo mixes, and that's just because also what I grew up listening to. Here's Mark Lynette from his Sound on Sound interview. You know, you know, Brian's mode was always mono. 
Um, and while they did issue some of the early albums in stereo, they were, you know, very quick and just with whatever, you know, whatever was left on the final three track. You know, stereo, stereo and pop music was, you know, I mean, in not pop music and rock music, stereo was, you know, a marketing uh, thing. I mean, you know, it, it, and, I, and I, I agree. I mean, those records, you know, the original records, <laughs> they were, they were, they were made to be heard on AM radio, uh, and they were made to be heard in mono. Um, both because of the medium and also, you know, because in mono, uh, a producer uh, could could make sure that what you were doing was what the listener was going to hear. Stereo, especially in those days, could be so, you know, so odd. I mean, you know, speakers behind the couch, speakers out of phase, uh, you know. Um, rock music had always been been mono. So one advantage we had when we went back to uh, do things like the pet, sound, pet sounds in stereo is that we could manually sync the first and all, all, all the subsequent, the first reel and all the subsequent overdubs onto, at the time, what we used was a, a Sony Digital Dash machine um, to come up with uh, something more like a, like a traditional multi-track master that we could then do a mix from. If you didn't do that, I mean, if, I, if, if you went to the final tape that was used for the original mix, which was in mono, what you had was the entire backing track on one track and then the vocals on a few other tracks. So you really couldn't do much of a stereo mix um, from those tapes. When you're trying to take a, a, um, a record specifically made to be in mono and, and make, a, make stereo out of it with what's left. I mean, you wind up with the band on one side and the vocals on the other side, maybe the lead vocal in the middle. I mean, it's, 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 it's not terribly satisfying. When we were doing the Pet Sounds box, we, of course, are doing the stereo mix, and the song Caroline No, which is, um, there's no backgrounds, but it's a double lead vocal by Brian, and he, 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 he sang the double as it was being mixed. But amazingly, there was a tape in the vaults, uh, Maybe it was an echo delay tape. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a quarter inch, and what's what's on it is Brian's double. So I was able to take that and manually sync it to the other one, and voila, we have we have the double vocal. This sort of leads to this you know a discussion about the Pet Sound stereo mix because while it is you know ninety percent, let's say, uh, uh, the same. Uh, has the same content as the mono mix. There are a few instances like that where either a double lead isn't on the multi-tracks or in a couple of cases, most notably Wouldn't It Be Nice and God Only Knows, where on part of the song, the lead vocal that's in the final mix isn't there. And Wouldn't It Be Nice, I don't know whether Mike originally sang the whole song or only sang the bridge, which is what he's on in the, in the finished version, but the A-track master uh, has Brian singing the lead all the way through. We eventually used digital extraction technology to try to pull Mike out of the mono mix and add that to the, the new stereo mix. And then there are a couple more like that where um, uh, after something was recorded, Brian apparently decided to go back to an earlier version and use part of it or use all of it. Um, and so the multi-track doesn't you know, doesn't, doesn't uh, duplicate that. Then, of course, there are things on the multi-track that didn't get used in the in the final mix as well, so. So for me, if we're just gonna talk preference, it truly is situational for me. <clears throat> um, if I'm putting my headphones on, I love to listen to those stereo versions because you can hear some more, you know, details. Um, and I love that from just a, like, if I'm thinking about production stuff and like, oh, how did they do that? What does that sound? You know, I get into that. But if I want to listen to the songs because I just want to hear those songs and I'm driving in my car or I'm hanging out at home or, or whatever, I love the mono mixes of the early stuff and even Pet Sounds more. Just because, you know, in passing, to me, in passing, mono is more pleasing. And, that, and, I, and I think that makes sense for Beatles and Beach Boys and, and music from the mono era. You know, like I've heard weird stereo versions of Phil Spector songs and they sound terrible, you know, because it just doesn't make sense. It's not the sound of those records. So that's kind of my point 
you know, I have friends and I myself have made recordings that are in mono, but it's cool and it sounds good to an extent, but if you're not if it's not of the era, I just don't think that mono is superior, but if it is of the era, I do kind of think it's superior. But by the time they had the multi-tracking down and, you know, we're talking late 60s and you know, things like Abbey Road and Friends and Sunflower and all that stuff was around. I mean, of course. Would I want to hear mono versions of that stuff? Probably not, because my ears are so attuned to what they were meant to be. So I guess the long and short version of it is, for me, the preference is what's appropriate. Yeah, I didn't realize how controversial this topic was, but I posted it uh, just to get things warmed up in our Facebook group so um there are a few people that were really mad about it but um you know i think you should re-examine your priorities if that makes you mad but uh we should yeah, uh, i mean <laughs> it's just on. personal preference and let's be honest like in night i mean we're talking about a guy in brian wilson that only had one ear he can't hear stereo so i mean there's really he can't even make a decision on whether he likes mono or stereo. He just likes mono because it is what he hears every day. So, you know, to to say like this is the way it was intended or that it's wrong to hear these songs in stereo, that's just not the case because there wasn't another option. That's all there is to it. There was no other option for these records because Brian Wilson produced them. And even in 1967, um, he was mixing in mono and you didn't really get a real stereo mix until friends. So, um, and I'm kind of like that with the, with the, I'm kind of the same way with the Beatles. I don't, I don't love the early mono mixes. Um, sorry. I don't love the early stereo mixes because they're just kind of hodgepodge, like last minute afterthought things. But I think when you get to, especially magical mystery tour, like the stereo mixes are fantastic. Like they just sound awesome. And, uh, like the white album, uh, sounds great in stereo. And of, oh, yeah. of course, like, I mean, all the, all the, uh, stuff recorded after 1967, like I think should be heard in stereo. It's just, you've got the, you finally got the, the amount of tracks that it takes to really create a good stereo mix. And I just, you know, it's also like what I grew up with. I never, I never listened to a lot of mono music growing up and, um, it just sounds small and squashed to me. But if, if that's the intention from the beginning, then it can be done really well. When you're recording with 8 to 16 tracks, as they were in the late 60s, you know, I think doing stereo mixes just makes sense. Yeah. <sighs> anyway. You know, it's, you know what's interesting about old stereo mixes from the 60s um, versus like, you know, what you can do now where you can do everything. You can put one instrument on each, you know, little bit of the spectrum now but i always liked especially on things that were done on eight track like how there were groupings in stereo places where you'd have a couple things here a couple things there you know like it was never super defined you still had clusters of stuff right and i, I know that's kind of a weird thing to to mention but it, so when you listeners go listen to stuff from the late 60s in stereo, take that into account how, oh, the horns and this and this thing are on this side, and on this side there's this, this, and this, but the vocal's in the middle. Weird. You know, um, I just think it's kind of neat how they could kind of get into that once they had the multiple tracks. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm not ashamed to say it, but I'm not an audiophile. I don't uh, listen to lossless music. I listen to mp3s and streaming and i prefer stereo mixes um because at that bit rate it's really hard to tell what's going on anyway but uh, i i always go for convenience over um high def because it's just really hard to listen to hd music all the time it's just not really convenient i mean especially for what we do we're mixing down to a podcast that's basically an mp3 so um i'm just waiting for the pet sounds 50th anniversary edison cylinder oh yeah perfect <laughs> um uh, but yeah thanks freddie for bringing that up I, I i know it's something that a lot of people could talk on and on about i uh 
I don't really have a, a strict policy on mono versus stereo. It's more about convenience for me and, and what personal preference is. And I think a lot of people feel that way, but um, you know, we'll continue that discussion over on our Facebook group. There is a link in the show notes. Um, all right. Back to pet sounds. Today we are talking about a track called That's Not Me, written by Brian Wilson and his lyricist, Tony Asher. So on February 15th, 1966, at 2 p.m. at Western Recorders with engineer Chuck Britz, they came in not with the wrecking crew, but Brian and his brothers, Carl and Dennis, their friend Terry Melcher, and their cousin, Steve Korthoff. And I think that's the most interesting thing about this is that it was back to basics, really just a Beach Boys track. And um, the song was very minimal. Um, and I don't know if that was just the intention or if they really just wanted to get in the studio and do a track and couldn't get the wrecking crew on that specific day. But um, whatever the case, the song um, is very simple as far as the basic track. You've got Brian on the Hammond organ, kicking it off with Carl on electric guitar. Uh, he's kind of playing what would be the bass part. And then you've got Dennis playing um, the drum kit which really just revolved around the toms. Then you've got on tambourine, Terry Melcher and Steve Korthoff. So um, really fantastic sounding track because again, like I said before on a couple other tracks, when you've got such a minimal arrangement the real color and it's vocals uh, yeah i mean the real color of the song is the vocal and you can really hear everything going on and it's funny because uh there's a few mistakes in here too like um brian plays a few weird notes on the yeah. organ and carl plays a couple little weird flourishes on the guitar it's really kind of quirky and i feel like maybe they were just kind of playing around with the track and maybe they thought and I'm totally speculating. Maybe they thought that this was more of a demo and that they were going to bring in the Wrecking Crew at a later time to, you know, do the proper track. I'm not sure, but it is way different than the rest of the record in that way. You know, it, it is way different, but it really fits. And I think that's oh, definitely yeah. definitely the vocal arrangement. And, well, they got the... It's the same tone as the rest of the record in a way. But, um, yeah, I love the little flubs and... Um, bum notes, not they're not playing the wrong notes, but timing wise, unlike the on yeah. the Dan Electro mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But you know, it's interesting. Um, you don't really hear that, especially me, like when I was younger, like obsessing over the mono and stereo versions. Thank you very much. Um, but kind of you know, listening to that growing up before I heard the instrumental. I didn't really notice it because the vocals were so perfect and so laid in the right place and and the, and the way they used the, um, whether it was the plates or the reverb chambers on those tracks. I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I guess if you're a casual listener to it, you're not going to pick all that stuff up. But of course, we've been deep diving for years. So I don't know. It's perfect. Yeah, I think you're, you're spot on with that. And as we've talked about with a few other tracks, like um, there's some flubs and wouldn't it be nice, but I think Brian knew where the vocals were going to be and how prominent the vocal arrangement was going to be in the mix at certain points. And those are the points where they may have been afforded a couple of little flubs on instrument track. But um, so yeah, the basic track is really simple. Like I said, and it's, we don't have all the tracking tapes as we do for some of these others because they did so many overdubs, but um, the master take was uh, number 15. Um, and then they also did three overdubs, um, which at that point, um, Carl picked up his 12-string electric, plugged it direct into the console, and added a lead guitar part, which was then doubled.
Uh, and then Brian also played two bass tracks. So the first one was a Fender bass, um, kind of doing the more traditional bass part on the record. And then he also played a Dan Electro bass with the sort of slapback delay on it. Pretty cool that that was Brian. Yeah, it really is cool because usually that would be Carol Kay and Lyle Ritz, you know. But um, I'm pretty sure that um, from all the knowledge that we have that we can that we can glean, I think we can definitively say that it was Brian playing both those overdubs because there was no one else really there. There's no AFM contract sheet for this. Um, but uh, on the third overdub, I think they brought in Hal Blaine. And he was playing what I have been told is Temple Blocks, but it sounds really interesting. It's sort of like a, sort of like, sounds like two uh, bags of, like, Lego bricks hitting together is the best thing yeah, I can describe yeah, it as. Yeah, I, I don't know what, I don't, <laughs> I've always wondered what that is, because it just sounds like, it sounds like, you know, like, like, seriously, like a bag of plastic toys. Yeah, something, I don't know. It's just really strange, and I, I think it's cool, and it's not really prominent in the final mix, but on the overdub track, you can really hear it. And I have no idea what it is. It doesn't sound like Timbal Blocks to me, but that's always what it's been credited. But um, who knows? Anyway. Um, and the dates for the vocal overdubs are unknown as well, but we can assume that it was either in February or early March at Western. Um, but... Um, the percussion has, speaking of Western, the percussion does have kind of a Western feel to it, kind of an openness um, and kind of a minimalist sound that I think connects with the lyric that we'll get to here in a minute. But um, also the, uh, the key changes, if you just listen to the track, are really strange and special, in my opinion, um, even before you hear the vocal, um, the way they kind of shift up and then um, the way they kind of resolve, especially near the end at the last key change, it's just really, really special. It's one of my favorite key changes in any song of all time is when they go from the F7 chord to the F sharp major seven chord. It's such a bizarre change that you would never hear in pop music, but it works That, that part and of it, the song always when I was oh a kid gosh. and still now, when I hear that, that is one of the biggest goosebump wreck parts of that whole album like it's yeah yeah it really it just, is it just hits and it's like what just happened <laughs> so i mean the song really is made in my opinion by the lead vocal and the lyric um and uh, of course written with tony asher and he expressed dissatisfaction with the lyrics for the song he said that they were labored and that he missed the mark in, uh, in 1976, Brian stated that that's not me reveals a lot about myself. Just the idea that you're going to look at yourself and say, hey, now look, that's not me. Tony and I really didn't realize who we were writing it for. We really didn't write for anybody. We just wrote songs. And Brian says that a lot, but he's always kind of writing about himself and his own experiences. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've got, of course, Mike Love singing the lead vocal on this. And it transitions into Brian singing a couple lines when it when it goes up in register, and I guess you would call it the chorus part, um, and then the the full complement on backing vocals. Um, but I mean, the lead vocal on this is astonishing. It's one of my favorite Mike Love lead vocal performances. I had to prove that I could make it alone now, but that's not me. I wanted to show how independent I've grown now, but that's not me. I could try to be big in the eyes of the world. What matters to me is what I could be to just one girl. 
But I think this is a great precursor to Sloop John B. And I just wasn't made for these times. You know, the same themes that are being echoed. And um, it's also uh, sort of a spiritual successor in, in a lot of ways to songs like In My Room, I Get Around, and When I Grew Up to Be a Man. So now that Brian has left home and found a place where the kids are hip, he has lost part of himself, and he wants to go back in time to when things were simpler. You know, when he first had his breakdown on the plane, he told his mom that he wanted to go home, and she thought he meant his house in Beverly Hills, but no, he meant the old Hawthorne house, so she took him there. And, and you know, he just had so much nostalgic comfort for um, how things used to be. I miss my pet and the places I'd known And every night as I lay there alone I would dream Like I said, I think it's a great vocal performance and the lyric is fantastic. And I know Tony Asher wasn't proud of it, but man, I love this lyric. It's it's maybe my favorite lyric on Pet Sounds, believe it or not. I'm just such a big fan of it. and I'm not a big lyric guy, but man, like when I heard this song, it just it just knocked me out. I was I was like I said, I think I was 15, and um, you know, it just it's just a great song for any teenager or you know young adult to hear, and it really hits home with a lot of people. I once had a dream, so I packed up and split for the city. I soon found out that my lonely life wasn't so pretty. This whole, the theme of this song really resonated with me the first time I heard it a long time ago. Um, Because, you know, I felt like I could really put myself into the mindset of the, of the, of the lyrics of the person singing Um, and how, you know, I think there's a thing in every young man uh, that kind of wants to prove to everyone that, you know, you know, not I don't want to say make a name for themselves, but make their own way, their own path. And so I don't know. There's just a lot of different mixed emotions that come with those lyrics. And, and then the way it's delivered, obviously, with those powerful arrangements and contrasting with the sparse track i don't know it's pretty magical it's kind of one of those perfect moments and it's kind of an under the radar beach boy song in a way don't you think wyatt yeah i mean it gets skipped over a lot on these pet sounds documentaries and and i think it really is the sort of the lyrical centerpiece for the tone of this record but what's cool and i don't know if it was intentional but I mean, lush vocal track, sparse backing track. So there's the contrast. The lyrics are all contrast. I don't know. It really works. It comes together. I had to prove that I could make it alone now, but that's not me. I wanted to show how independent I've grown now, but that's not me. I could try to be big in the So pretty I 
Great arrangement, great ideas, um, and it's great to have a real Beach Boys track on this record. Um, this is really the only track where you've got the Beach Boys playing and singing it. So um, that's really special too. That this you know this would have fit in on the Today album or the um, Summer Days Summer Nights album. But um, I also think it really fits thematically in this record just perfectly. And it comes at a great point in the record. So um, that being said, um, I give this song a nine out of ten. It's an easy one for me. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you. I've been agreeing with you a lot on this because there's not a lot to debate or feel any differently. Um, you know, it's a, it's almost perfect. It's a nine out of ten. Um, that vocal part takes it over the edge from eight to ten eight to nine for me um that key change the way all that comes together always has just been pure magic um so yeah i don't really have a lot to add to that other than uh i don't know to me this is one of the most brian wilson tracks on the album i mean they all are but this one is very very it's quirky it's got the big vocals. It's got the the lyrics that are really kind of melancholy in a way. But also, you know, there's a theme in a lot of these Beach Boys records, and it probably came, and I think we talked about this, you know, many moons ago. You know, there's always been that struggle between Brian and Murray. And this, in a way, has some of that element of, you know, you know, be a man versus I don't want to be a man, you know, kind of thing that he would deal with with his dad. So I don't know if that's something that we even talked about on this episode. And I don't think we did, but it kind of has a little bit of that theme in there just a bit. Yeah, I agree. And um, I guess the only other thing that, that I wanted to mention on this song is something that a, uh, one of our listeners brought up to me, uh, a guy named Jeremy Hoffman, uh, and after doing a little research, I found a little bit more about this motif that he brought up, but um, also uh, was referenced by James E. Perone, an author who called the, um, called the motif the sighing motif. He's referring to the little descending melodic sighs at the end of certain phrases, and we see this a lot on pet sounds. The, uh, you know, those little things. And it happens all over this record, and, and Jeremy Hoffman sent me a little video of some of the instances that he found, and I'm going to play you a little bit of that right now. It's really interesting um, when you see how often it's used on this record. And I don't know if that was a totally conscious thing by Brian, but it really does add emotion to certain lines. And um, it didn't really happen a lot before this record, and it doesn't really happen a ton after this record, even though Brian still does it to this day on certain songs. But it's just really interesting how this album really went for it, for that little sort of motif, as they said. Anyway, um, great song. Like I said, it really does tie together a lot of the other themes in the record. So um, 
that being said, uh, we've got only a few more tracks to go, believe it or not. Um, Crazy. So next episode, we are going to be talking about what some consider to be the greatest song ever recorded. I'll leave you guys hanging because I'm sure you have no idea what it is, but loop de loop. Uh, we'll see you guys. We'll see you guys next time. Um, again, thanks for your support. Uh, be sure to check out Will C, who does all our great music. Um, all these links in the show notes. Thanks to Jason for hanging out and talking Beach Boys with me, as always. And um, we will talk to you guys real soon. Sail on, sailors. did that patreon episode about the food songs yeah i hear there's rumblings of a podcast called hamburger stand that's just about that really no i made that up oh <laughs> <laughs>